Father, thank you so much for your word that you give to us. Thank you for our fellowship here. And thank you, Lord, thank you that we are staring down wedding day. Wow. You know, the more, Lord, we think about what you have planned, the more we look into how you have expressed it across 6,000 years, the more blown away we are and the more just entranced we are, truly, Father, with, with what you had in mind and how you've brought it about and what you've done. And, I mean, I don't have words for it, Lord, except to say thank you and to say hallelujah. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Lord Jesus. And we come once again requesting of your Holy Spirit to teach us your word, to fill us up with faith, to encourage and inspire and convict so that every heart represented in this room, every person here tonight, will be ready when you call. Thank you for your word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Late show host Stephen Colbert, he was interviewing Keanu Reeves on the upcoming third installment of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure movies. And they were talking about the movie, and after Keanu Reeves explained the plot line, Colbert asked him, so, so in the movie, you're facing your own mortality and the mortality of all existence. And Keanu Reeves said, yeah. Colbert quickly followed up by asking, what happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? Did you read about this in the paper? I just love this response. He paused for a moment and then said, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. The audience sighed. Colbert appeared stunned. Wow, he said, before he shook Reeves' hand for a moment and ended the segment. I just wanted to begin this evening with a moment of profound wisdom. What happens when we die? I know that the ones who love us will miss us. No, duh. This, this is, see, this is, no offense, but no duh. That doesn't even answer the question. What happens when we die? We'll be missed. Well, okay. Maybe not. I don't know. It's, it's just, this is what happens. This is what the world says. And these statements like this are made and people go, yeah. Yeah, that's deep. That, that, that's deep. I love you 3,000. <laughs> I don't get it. But as we come to the last four chapters now, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will see exactly what happens if and or when we die. Whether we die or we are caught up in the rapture, either way, when everything is fully and finally accomplished. See, God doesn't leave it to guessing. He doesn't leave us wondering, what's what's it like? What then? He, he explains things. He draws it out. Now, now, even the words that we'll be going over in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, they're still, they're going to come up short of, of the experience of the reality. Because how do you define heaven? How do you explain eternity? It's not harps and clouds. And it's much bigger than the fact, yeah, I, I, I get, someone's going to miss Keanu Reeves. We have his movies. You know, you just watch those. 
I understand that, but it's just that the, the world, and it's been, by the way, that whole little segment I shared with you has been lauded in the news this past week as a profound moment of deep wisdom and reflection. It will be missed. That's the best you can come up with. Well, we've got the Word of God that tells us what's coming. Now, the reason that's the best that he can come up with is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, which tells us that he has made everything appropriate in its time. He, that is God, has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We've talked about that verse before. It's one of those wonderful, mysterious verses in the Bible. God has put the sense of eternity in your heart, in my heart. We know it. We sense it. You don't have to be a believer in Jesus to have that sense that there, there is beyond this. There is eternity. There is an ongoing of existence. It's more than just being missed. And yet, and yet your average person doesn't know. But what is that? I have a sense of eternity. What is it? And we cannot find out without revelation from God. But when you come to Him, when you receive the faith that He offers you, in that moment of just, okay, I'm going to believe, He begins to show you what you could not figure out any other way. Since day one, the Lord through the promises through the prophecies, and most wonderfully, through the person of Jesus, has shown us the work which He has done from beginning to end. He's given us the sense. He takes us into eternity, as it were. He takes us beyond just the feeling that there's more, and tells us, yes, there's more, and here it is. And by the way, I'd like to share it with you. And so the book of Revelation, which we have been going through, is such a wonderful culmination of all of this because it's the Lord saying I got more and here's a picture here's a snapshot here's an idea of what of what is coming for you first Peter chapter 1 verse 10 Peter summed this up very well he said the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries see even in the prophets they they had eternity in the heart but they're still trying to figure out okay but what is it that I'm prophesying what does this mean, Lord? First Peter 1.11, they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In Peter's second letter, chapter 1, verse 19, he said, We have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. See, we live in a dark place. The world is a dark place where the best answer to death is we might be missed. But the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is a lamp shining in a dark place. The world needs a good lamp. And we have it in the revelation of Jesus. In fact, I would say to you, Jesus is that lamp. So we come to Revelation 19. I've been looking forward to this for 19 chapters. And as we get to verse 1, I want to go over. We, we did the first six to seven verses on Sunday looking at the fourfold hallelujah. I want to run through them again because they're just too good to miss. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! 
The salvation and the glory and the power belong to our God. If you weren't here on Sunday, note that. It's not salvation, glory, and power. It's the salvation, the glory, the power. And these belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. Hallelujah. And it's as relevant to our lives now as it will be joyful in our lives then. See, we're still going to say hallelujah. We'll be singing hallelujah throughout eternity. It is going to be a favorite word in heaven, even as it's a favorite word among believers today. But hallelujah is the song we sing now in a corrupt world. And it's the song that will be sung then on this day in response to God's righteous judgment of the harlot. And we looked at that and considered how how interesting a, a praise chorus this is, truly. That you don't often sing praising God for judging the harlot. That's not a typical Sunday song. You know, that's probably not one I'd have Rachel repeat. But but it's here because it's real and it's what's happening and the people are responding because this judgment is on the one who has corrupted the world. That's the issue. That throughout history, there has been a corruptive or a corrosive process that's been going on. That word corrupting, he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth, is pathyro. And pathyro in the Greek, it means destroying, ruining, decaying, or defiling. It's like rust. You know, when rust, I had a, I've mentioned before my my car that we used to call the maggot, my, my little Toyota Corolla. A little white car with a yellow pinstripe on it. That was cool. Pinstripe. So excited that I had a pinstripe. This is what you looked for in the late 70s, early 80s. Anyway, my little car started to get some rust on the front fenders, both sides. Well, no problem. White spray paint, that'll take care of it, right? And then it's bigger and bigger. Ultimately, I had to replace both of the fenders because the rust just took over and I was an idiot. Kind of the two went together. And that's the world we live in. There's a corrosiveness going on along with the foolishness of man. And it's ruined life as we know it. It's corrupted things. This deterioration, it can speak of creation as in the created world broadly, that there is corruption in the world. How do you know there's corruption? Look for it. Death, disease, Weeds. Cheryl spent a bunch of, I don't know how long you were out there weeding the front yard today. You know why she had to weed the the yard? Sin in the world. (laughs) I mean, truly. Thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, God told Adam. And it wasn't meant to be that way. Corruption. Corrosion. But it's not just creation broadly. It's not just the world in general that that now experiences death, that now knows things are slowly burning out, burning down. But it's also the created. Personally, we know corruption. We have a a corruption in a sin corrupts the person. Now, think about it this way. In, In Jewish thinking, in Jewish opinion, the temple was considered corrupted when it was defiled to the slightest degree. That is, something was damaged in it, Uh, If the priestly caretakers neglected their duty, the temple at large was considered corrupt. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? And the question I have for you tonight is, will we allow ourselves these temples to fall into ruin and decay by neglect and disregard? Will we disregard the things of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness and the teachings of God that, that call these very bodies? And we, we still play the game as Christians of separating the body from the spirit. I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and then we treat our bodies like not temples of God, but temples of pagans. You know, Paul even says in another place, are you going to marry the temple of the Holy Spirit to a prostitute? Would you do that? I mean, if we're in our right minds and we're thinking about Jesus and we're walking with Jesus, we, we wouldn't do this. We would not neglect the physical body as much as our mental capacity and our spirit man, our spirit woman. Because it's all connected. And I'm not talking here about diet and exercise in terms of taking care of the temple. That, that's not my concern because no amount of healthy living can stop the corruption. Now, I'm not saying don't exercise and don't eat healthy. I'm just saying there's no salvation in it. There is only salvation in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, But we do not lose heart, even though our outer man is decaying. Same word, by the way, as corruption, the, the corrupting of the great harlot. Even though our outer man is corrupted, decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And that's why Jesus' people in this world can sing hallelujah, because the salvation, the glory, and the power belong to our God. That even here in the darkness, even here in the corruption that is around us, Peter said, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, listen, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And that corruption came from, is by the great harlot. And she is judged and that sin is wiped out, and therefore the people sing, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Corruption is finally dealt with. What's the opposite of corruption? It's creation. Creation is the opposite of corruption, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, in a world where the best hope they have is, I might be missed, it's easy to be discouraged by the decay. But there is so much better. So much better. New creations. And understand, as new creations in Jesus Christ, we are not here to leave a legacy. We are living to gain eternity. Is living looking forward, not living looking behind you. Verse 3, and a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And again, as we read on Sunday, that seems a harsh word in the midst of a praise service. Praise the Lord! She's burning, burning, burning. I mean, you know, it just... Wow! 
But this is what's taking place at the time. This is what's going on. And the quote, get this, the quote of the smoke rising up forever and ever comes from Isaiah chapter 34, verse 10. you got to hear the whole thing in context, the fuller context to this praise chorus that's going on. We've just been given a hint. That quote tells us what's being sung. Want to hear all of it? See, Isaiah 34 is just part of the picture. you got to roll into Isaiah 35. Listen to this. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabo will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those who with with anxious heart, take courage, courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. And then verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And truly what's cool about Isaiah 35 is in Jesus' first coming, His healing ministry proved Him to be the Messiah of this promise. You know, the ears of the deaf are unstopped. Eyes of the blind now see the tongue of the mute is, is loosed to speak and to praise And even the lame are leaping around. So if you've ever felt lame, get ready to dance. Because it was proof positive when Jesus came that He is the source of the Isaiah 35 promise. He showed it ahead of time and this will continue to happen when He comes. 35 verse 7 of Isaiah, the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass Becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there. A roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. And the unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for him who walks in the way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there. Nor any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. And come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And my friends, that sounds like a worship service to me. That is a reason to sing out hallelujah. And that is... Revelation 19, verse 3, the hallelujah that rises and parts the smoke of her burning. The hallelujah is the joy of the redeemed and the ransomed singing with gladness like streams in the desert. And that day is fast approaching. Verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Remember that Amen's right now we say in agreement, Yes, Lord, may it be so. But our Amen's in heaven are not agreement, they are acclamation. Yes, Lord, you made it so. So be it, Lord. You did it, Lord. That's what we're coming to In the heavenly amens. By the way, something I didn't tell you on Sunday. The 24 elders. I've I've mentioned that. We did that study on it back in Revelation 4. And I believe there's every indication that the 24 elders imply the church. That it's a representation of 
the church. And we went all into that. And if you're not sure about that, go back and think it through and, and listen to Revelation 4. Study that out some more. But I believe this is the church here, the 24 elders. And I'll give you another reason why I think so. Because after this verse, this is the last time we see the 24 elders mentioned or named at all in the Revelation. Though there will be more worship, though we see more gatherings around the throne, this is the last time that they're seen. They're not mentioned again. But you know who is? The bride. So as of verse 7, now it's the bride that's mentioned and the 24 elders seem to disappear. Why? Because the 24 elders are the bride. Because we've come into that identity. And that's how the church is known. And we'll see that when we get to verse 7. Verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying... Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great, right in the middle of the praise, give praise to God. But if you were taking notes Sunday, you know it's keep giving praise. Come on! Come on! Keep it up! Don't stop now! Louder! Let's break the noise meter! Give praise! Keep giving praise to our God! Keep it up! The voice says from the throne. One of the angels shouts. But get this, get this. Every voice matters. Every voice counts. When you're at a Seahawks game, it doesn't really seem like every voice counts. It is so stinking loud. It's ridiculous. It's redonkulous. It's so loud. At a Seahawks game, you've got to have earplugs or you're going to be ringing for a week in your head. You think every voice, ah, I can, I can, I'll quiet, I'll save my voice. Well, what if... of the crowd did? What if 20% of the crowd did? What if only half the people there were, you know, cheering on the team? Your your noise level is going to start coming down. And what we see going on here is not just that this great praise is going on, and it's not just that they're being incited to more and more praise, but note who's being incited, you who fear Him, the small and the great. The micros and the megas. So those of you with big voices, sing it out, man. And those of you with real soft, tender, gentle voices, sing it out, man. Because it's to all of us. Every voice matters. Every voice in praise. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your influence. It doesn't matter how big or little a noise you think that you're making in your life. So many Christians, so many believers, they show up at church... They're in the Word. They love the Lord. But when you ask, hey, what's your ministry? Hey, what's your deal with Jesus? The answer is, oh, I I don't. I I mean, I'm there. I don't really have anything to offer. You have a voice. Use it. Keep on praising. Praise out the small and the great. Because as far as God is concerned, the small is great. The servant is great. The humble is great. Small or the great, it doesn't matter who you are. Praise the Lord. Sing your hallelujah. Come on, keep giving praise to God. Verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We come to the fourth hallelujah in this crescendoing chorus And it's the fourth hallelujah that we saw on Sunday unlocks unfettered joy. 
And this is key even for where we're going tonight. The fourth hallelujah. It's the lordship of Jesus that frees us. It is where Jesus reigns that people drop their chains. And that may there may be a subtle understanding in the life of the believer between true lordship and just uh, following to a degree. I believe, I show up, I'm there, I know He saves me, but my life is still wrecked. Well then, I ask you again tonight, is He Lord? Is He Lord? Does He have complete lordship? Because where Jesus has lordship, joy is unfettered. Joy is unchained. Freedom finally comes. Jesus said, He has sent me to bind up, that is to bandage the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Do you think He was kidding? Or do you think Jesus comes along and unlocks one shackle, but He's going to leave the other one on just for good measure? I have come to set you free. It is for freedom's sake you have been set free. Why do we still walk in a yoke of bondage? And it could be bondage to a certain sin lifestyle or behavior. It could be bondage to fear or depression or doubt or worry. Jesus came to set us free. We would do well to take Him more at His word. Do you understand what I'm saying with that? That we have a way of rationalizing down. uh, Of softening the word of God. I have come, he says, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, yeah, that's most people. No, it's every captive. And it's absolute liberty. Freedom to prisoners. Well, yeah, but I got to keep my cell just in case. In case I need, you know, a place to hide from the storms of life. It's absolute, utter freedom by Jesus. But as long as I cling to lordship... As long as I am the king of me, I'm going to remain shackled. I'm going to remain imprisoned. It's ironic because, again, we love to sing and pray about as we did on Sunday. I'm ready. I'm ready for Jesus to come. I have the sense, this desire of readiness. We just sing out like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be a church ready for you. You know what the key is to readiness? It's lordship. It is Lordship. You are ready. I am ready when Jesus is truly Lord of our lives. Our readiness as the bride of Christ, and we're almost there, is contingent. Get this. Our readiness as the bride is contingent upon our acquiescence to the Lordship of the groom. And I'm, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna try not to step on any toes here, but I had kind of an epiphany in studying this myself through the week. Jesus' earthly ministry, interesting, began with a wedding feast, and here in Revelation 19 it ends with a wedding feast. Like bookends on everything Jesus has done is a wedding feast in uh, Cana of Galilee. There's a wedding feast. Jesus and his friends were there and they ran out of wine. I'm not going to get all into what what, was it, what, what, what kind of wine was it and where they drank. See, so he drank wine and he provided wine. So we're not going to go there right now. The fact is, they were out of wine. 
And Jesus' mother, Mary, came to him and said, they have no wine. I love his response. John chapter 2, verse 4. Woman! No, he didn't say it like that. He said, woman, what does that have to do with us? You know, what am I, your local winemaker here? What, what does that have to do with us? He says, my hour has not yet come. It is not time, Jesus is saying, for me to provide the wine. Now, you know, in the miracle he does, he turns water to wine. The celebration goes on. There's a reason for that. Jewish wedding, no expense is spared in the celebration of joy. Wine in the scriptures is a picture of joy. So you're saying we should go drink wine and get drunk? No! That is not what I'm saying. You're missing the whole point. That's that's making superficial what's happening in this amazing miracle. It's what it's a picture of. It's what Jesus is showing us here. That His hour had not yet come, but by grace He still provided for the wedding to continue. But that hour did come when He poured out His blood like wine upon the altar of the cross. And at the last, we come to another wedding feast. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Three things I want you to know tonight. And the first is the identities. The identities. We know the identity of the groom. The groom is the Lamb. Because this is the marriage of the Lamb. And we know the Lamb is Jesus, the little Lamb slain. So this is Jesus revealed. Revelation 19 is amazing in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll come to that on Sunday morning, even more than than we've seen. But it's Jesus revealed here as the groom, as the lamb who is being married to the bride. There aren't multiple grooms. It's not a lineup of stand-up guys. I love it. Jerry Seinfeld says that's, by the way, why all the guys wear tuxes. And why they all look exactly the same. Because if something happens to the groom, the next day they just take a step to the right and he takes over. And they just continue on down if they have to. Guys keep passing out, just go to the next one. You know, it's kind of like paper towels. Just pull one out. There's no multiplicity of grooms here. Jesus is the best man. He is it. He's all there is. He is the groom revealed. So we know the groom is Jesus. The bride is specific as well. And note this. The bride here does not include tribulation saints. It does not include Older Testament saints. The bride only includes believers out of the church age. I'm talking about the raptured church. Those of the past 2,000 years of this age who have come to faith in Jesus Christ are the bride. And we've seen that comparison uh, of being the bride of Christ. We've seen the comparison a few times in the New Testament Scriptures. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The picture of the church as the bride. And the church is the bride, and no one else is, and and there's a reason for that. See, the church is the only group of people in history who believed without seeing. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. 
there's something very special about that. Not better. I'm not saying that we're better than ancient Israel or we're better than those tribulation saints who will be saved. No. You just happen to at some point say, I receive faith. I believe, Lord. Uh, And some of you said, yes, I believe. And someone said, okay, I believe. (laughs) Talking to someone today, I don't want to say who, but talking to someone earlier today who was saying that's kind of how this person came to faith was kind of kicking and screaming, but okay, if I have to believe, I'll believe. And then, you know, faith came. But it's those who have, well, we've chosen the groom. That's what love wants. Love wants to be chosen. Love wants to know that the other has said, I want to be with you. And in all of history, that's the church. People who didn't necessarily see. And by the way, in your life, if you're having struggles because you can't see, Lord, I can't see what you're doing. It's frustrating. I just wish I could see. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Trust Him more. Ask for an increase of faith. Because bride the groom is coming. By the way, remember to whom the revelation was written in the first place. Just go all the way back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. I can just read it to you. Jesus says to John, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamos and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The seven churches, locally, historically, but also prophetically, as we saw in chapters 2 and 3, of the entire church age. This is a letter. In fact, this is amazing to me. This is a letter from the groom to the bride. That's the book of Revelation. It's a love letter from the groom to his bride. Written to the seven churches, written to the church across the church age, that we might know our groom is coming to get us. He's coming for us. I sometimes wonder, I asked our staff earlier today, what kind of bride wouldn't want to read a letter from her groom? Churches that will not touch the book of Revelation. Christians that won't read it because it's just too hard to understand. This is a love letter from your groom, bride. I I, I can't even imagine had I sent off a letter to Cheryl when we were engaged to find out on our wedding night that the letter is still sealed up and was never opened. What are you talking about? This is a letter from the loving groom to his bride. Look over at Ephesians. Another example of where we are talked about in these terms. Ephesians chapter 5. If you got your Bible with you, turn over there. Ephesians 5. Go ahead. You know that scene in a Charlie Brown Christmas where Charlie Brown comes to the psychiatric booth of Lucy to get some advice and she says, five cents please, and he drops a nickel in and she shakes it around. She goes, oh, I love that sound, that clinking sound, that wonderful clinking sound of nickels. Nickels, nickels, nickels. You know, That's how I feel about turning pages in the Bible when I hear the rustle. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Now, Really dial in on this. Listen, it's vitally important to understanding the groom and the bride and our relationship with Jesus. Watch this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Well, I don't like that. I didn't ask if you liked that. That's what it says. So hang with me just a second. As the church is subject to Christ, verse 24, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Got it? Continue on. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church, and this is where the wife typically elbows the husband and says, yeah, and died for her. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Wait, are we talking about husbands and wives or are we talking about the church? Exactly. Keep reading. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also the church. Because we're members of his body. For this reason, now quoting Genesis 1, 27, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul brings it home. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's the deal. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You've got to get this. This is why the lordship factor is encouraged in the biblical husband-wife relationship. There is a biblical call to headship in a marriage. That the husband is the head of the wife. That's what Scripture says. Why does it say that? That's so unfair. Hey, it's not about who's the boss. It is not about who wears the pants in the family. It has absolutely nothing to do with, well, I'm the neck and I can turn the head wherever I want. All the contention between husbands and wives miss this, don't understand. It is not about rights or control or power. It's not about who's better or who's in authority over the other. It is about, get this, it is about headship. Marriage, the picture of marriage God has given us between a man and a woman, a husband and his wife, is about headship, which is why, though it wrinkles a lot of brows and upsets a lot of even Christians, Ephesians 5 is in there. It's why Paul says what he says. It is about headship. Let me push this a little bit further for you. Turn over to uh, 1 Peter. So go write a few books to 1 Peter Chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Picking up right in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. So that, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives. So Peter's talking to wives of husbands who don't believe. Here's what you do. Well, I've tried that. It hasn't worked. Keep going. Just keep doing this. Do this. Because, by the way, ladies, if you're in this position, or husbands, if you're in this position with a wife, 
seeking to win them without a word by your behavior. Note that even if they don't seem to be responding, you are honoring God in amazing ways. Verse 2 says, As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external or outward, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, you've got to know the story of Sarah and Abraham to understand how profound this is. It's not just that she referred to him as Lord or Sir. It's that he handed her over to Pharaoh to be part of Pharaoh's harem so that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him. It's that Abraham lied and said, oh yeah, no, she's uh, my sister. Yeah, my sister. And Pharaoh takes his wife off to be a part of his harem. Because Abraham's a chicken. And what does Sarah do? I'm not his sister. I'm his wife. Cut his head off. No, no. What does she do? She goes. Get this. She acquiesced to the lordship of her husband. And he was absolutely wrong. But she submitted. She called him Lord. He did it, by the way, not once, but twice. (laughs) Once you could say he just had a brain freeze. Twice, what is wrong with you? She submitted to the lordship of her husband. That's the example that's given. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman or literally since she is the feminine one and show her honor as a fellow heir. See, there it is. Now we're talking about equality. Now we're talking about no one's better than the other one. We're talking positions and roles here. But she's a fellow heir. She's getting the same inheritance you are. Treat her this way as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, what's the point? point is this. The marriage relationship on earth is to exemplify lordship. This is why we have marriage. This is also why we have so much trouble with marriage because marriage typically does not exemplify lordship. Wives not respecting their husbands in the way that Scripture defines. Husbands not loving their wives in the way that Scripture defines. And when we don't, we tear up the picture where the husband is an abusive, controlling, lorded over jerk, harming his wife, authoritarian. The picture's ruined. The painting is torn up. Where a wife is contentious and disrespectful and undermining and battling for power, the picture is, get this, corrupted. It deteriorates. What I'm saying to you is this. In marriage, we have the opportunity to represent the identity of Christ and the church. Which I submit to you, and I believe this more now than I ever have in my whole life, that is why God gave us marriage. First and foremost, He gave marriage to portray, to be an opportunity for us to actually live out in real terms 
the relationship he desires to have as the groom with his bride. Well, then how come it's such a messy picture for so many of us? Because the world is corrupt. And I'm not saying that to anybody's shame here tonight. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad if you've had a bumpy past in this. I mean, think about Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman saying, you've had five husbands and the guy you're with right now isn't even your husband. And was Jesus judgmental? No, He was loving her. He was revealing to her that He was Messiah. She got saved. The whole town got saved. The point is, we have been given this beautiful picture, this identity of the church as the bride with Christ as the groom, the perfect husband calling his wife in love. And how we respond to him is how wives are called to respond to their husbands. How he treats us is how husbands are called to treat their wives so that we show the world as followers of Jesus this beautiful picture of Christ in the church. We exemplify that. The identity. Secondly, it's even more than that. It's the intimacy. Because as we come to Revelation 19.7 and the marriage of the Lamb, this celebratory feast, it reveals the unequivocal joy of the union between Jesus and His people that, get this, is so close, our best example on earth is wedding day. That's the closest we've got in this world, on this planet, to the kind of joy. I've done so many weddings in my ministry life, and they're all the same in that they're all fun. They're all happy. They're all joyful. They're all a little weird because you know weddings bring out the weird in us. And it never goes exactly as planned, but it's just people seem to have a way of just being celebratory on that day. It's a wonderful moment of just pure joy. And, you know, there are those who cynically would say, and it will never be that way again. No, it can be. I think it gets better. But on that day, at that feast, we have this beautiful picture of joy, of faithfulness. I mean, think about how faithful a young married couple is five minutes after they say, I do. They are so faithful. On that day, everything's right. And this is the picture of intimacy we're given. You know, the rabbis actually taught that obedience to the commandments were suspended during a wedding celebration. That's what they taught. You don't have to worry about the commandments if obeying them might lessen in any way the joy of the occasion. So, party hardy. This is a time for rejoicing above all times. And in the Jewish community, that's true. The Jewish wedding is the height of joy for the community. It's the apex. And it contained three elements. You Bible students, you may be aware of this. Let me refresh your memory. Phase one of the Jewish wedding. Betrothal. Betrothal. Which was legally binding. It it was the contract of marriage. Signed, sealed, delivered. You are betrothed. It is the same uh, it, uh, much more than our engagement. For us, we can get engaged and then break it off. No big deal. If you're betrothed, to break off a betrothal required divorce. Because it was absolutely serious. The only thing that, that did not yet take place was the consummation of the marriage. The betrothal typically lasted a year. They would get betrothed and the groom would go to work. On a house, on a room, on an addition, usually to his father's house. 
And he would build and work on that. He'd have a year or so to do it. And when he got done, the father would inspect his work, take a look at, at what he's done. And when the father says, yeah, that looks great, he'll say, go get your girl. And off the groom goes for phase two, which is the marriage itself. Phase two, it began with a great processional to the bride's home. She and her maids had to be ready. Now, right after the betrothal, you probably knew you had some time, but as the year wore on, could be any time now. We don't know. Is he a quick builder? Oftentimes, Jewish brides would have spies. How's the building coming? How far along is he? He's getting close. Get ready. Get the dress. You know, get prepared. And so they'd be watching and and keeping watch ready. And when the groom was, was ready to receive his bride, he would go get her. And in the marriage, they would go directly to the ceremony with the friends and the witnesses. And there would be great joy. That's phase two. Phase three, the marriage feast. And the marriage feast sometimes lasted for days. Ever been to one of those long weddings that just never seems to be over and you're just doing one of these? Don't they want to go on their honeymoon? You know? The celebration would go on and on. Phase one, betrothal. Phase two, marriage. Phase three, the marriage feast. Or look at it this way. Phase one, redemption. Phase two, the rapture of the church. Phase three, the celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all represented right here. Jesus even carried this this mentality, this Jewish picture. He carried it and delivered it and expressed it on the night of His betrayal. John chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And it's the groom saying, I'm going to build. And it's you and me saying, I believe in you, Lord Jesus. And the moment He becomes Lord of my life and redemption happens, I am betrothed. We are betrothed right now to Jesus. We are the betrothed bride. The marriage is when He comes and gets us. And we're caught up. And we're with Him. And we're on a seven-year honeymoon. And in our case, we have the seven-year honeymoon and then it ends with the marriage feast. That final celebration. And you know what the marriage feast is? It's not only celebration, it's presentation. Meaning what? Meaning that's when the groom presents his bride. That's when he says, here she is. But as I said, bride's got to be ready. Bride needs to keep watch. Be ready to go at a moment's notice. Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It was given to her. The word there in the Greek can also be translated granted. It was granted her, and it's a word that describes a gift. It was granted to her. We live in a culture where everything is considered a right. We have all kinds of rights. I don't know how we we get a right to a livable wage. You have a right for that. You have a right for health care. Bernie Sanders wants everybody to have the right to Medicare for all. You know, everybody, it's a right. You should have that. It's your right. Why? I'm I'm not saying that that's a bad thing for people to be taken care of medically. When did that become a human right? (laughs) I don't get it. You have a right to citizenship. You do? 
You have a right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's your right. See, this is how we think in America 2019, and it is so much like Laodicea, which you may recall means the people's rights. People's rights. Where everything's a right, guess what happens? Appreciation diminishes and demands increase. It is my right to have health care. Therefore, you better provide it for me. As opposed to being appreciative because it's been given. Where something is granted, where something is offered as a gift. Man, that's what we're talking about here. It has been given to her, granted to her. Think about it this way. The bridal gown is a gift from the groom. He's purchased this for the bride and given it to her. She doesn't have to buy it. She can't afford it. I remember going and looking at, boy, this is a while ago, 33 years ago. Cheryl and I looking at wedding dresses. It's the only time in my life where I was okay with looking at wedding dresses or flipping through Modern Bride magazine. Never before, never since. But during that season, and there were dresses that were just so beautiful, I remember thinking at the time, I wish I could afford that. Wish, wish I could just give that to her. Well, that's what's going on here. Jesus is giving the wedding garments to His bride so that we may be dressed in the readiness of His righteousness. And check it out, how He breaks it down. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, which we looked at recently. It speaks of His righteousness. The fine linen is a priestly righteousness. It's simple, it's pure, it's clean picture of righteousness and it's bright fine linen that's bright the word bright here lampros that's where we get our word lamp bright because lampros is translated shining or splendid as Jesus said in Luke 12 35 be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit how do we keep our lamps lit how do we do that how do we how do we stay bright and, and sharp and clear? Well, Peter would say, Second Peter 1.19, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay attention to the prophetic word more sure. You want to keep the lamp burning? You want to keep it bright? You pay attention to the word more sure as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Fine linen, bright and clean. And the word clean is katharos, where we get cathartic. But it means pure, it means refined. In fact, in the Greek, katharos would be the opposite word from pathiros, that word corruption. So you've got corruption on the one hand, you've got catharos, cleanness on the other hand. In other words, you could say that the great harlot has nothing on the bride. The great harlot, try as she might to corrupt the world throughout history. Try as the devil might, through the agency of the great harlot, to corrupt believers in Jesus Christ. You have fine linen, bright and clean. Clean. My heart breaks, truly, when, when I talk to a sister who feels dirty. Feels like, you don't, you don't know my past, Pastor Rick. I've had this conversation. You don't know my past. You don't know where I've come from. 
You don't know the things I did or the carnage of relationships behind me. You're right, I don't. Jesus knew the past of the Samaritan woman and offered her this. The cleanness of this gown. Jesus knew the past of the woman caught in adultery and thrown at His feet. John chapter 8, you know the story. He knew her past. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. You know what? Those two ladies, they had a past that was dirty, but in Jesus, they become pure and spotless. And so do you. And so do I. It's, it's marvelous. And it's, but I can't get there. I, I can't clean myself up. No, you can't. That's why the gift, the gown is a gift. That's why the fine linen, bright and clean, is given to you by Jesus for you now to wear in the name of Jesus. Can you process even the, the beauty of this? That she's, she's dressed in all the righteousnesses, and that's it literally. The righteous acts of the saints is the righteousnesses of the saints. So it's the, the multiple acts that somehow we find ourselves doing the right thing. Somehow, somehow now I'm beginning to act holy. Now I'm beginning to walk in righteousness. Why? Because He gave it to me. And as I walk in that, He's purifying and cleansing in a way that I couldn't cleanse myself. And the beauty of this, listen, God has wardrobes full of righteousnesses. He's got power to give you, to give me, to walk as righteous. Righteousnesses for us to wear if we'll just put them on. Will we walk in holiness? Will we at least say, Lord... I want to be righteous. Help me to walk righteously. Help me to walk and give me the holiness you want me to walk in. And you know what happens when I put on this this gown? Stand with the word picture. (laughs) When I do that, I'm acquiescing to the lordship of the groom. And that's the key. That's it. Hallelujah. Back in verse 6, for the Lord our God, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He reigns. When I wear the righteous acts, when I act, live, and behave in a righteous manner, I am submitting myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all other things. So why do some remain content to dress in rags? You know, Isaiah said, Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us have become like the one who is unclean. So we all get it. You're not alone in this. If you're sitting there even tonight going, yeah, well, that's, I'm just, I'm the, I'm the raggy one here. No, you're not. All of us have become like one who is unclean, says Isaiah the prophet. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's the state of things. That's how we come to Jesus. But Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, Oh, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He has granted to me that I might now begin to walk holy and righteous. Fine linen, bright and clean. Charles Spurgeon said, The bride of Christ is a sort of Cinderella now sitting among the ashes. She's like her Lord, despised and rejected of men, 
The watchmen smite her, and they take away her veil from her, for they know her not, even as they knew not her Lord. But when he shall appear, then she shall appear also. And in his glorious manifestation, she, the bride, shall also shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Listen, I said this before, don't miss it now. That's what the marriage supper is all about. Presentation. It's the presentation of the bride. The groom saying, look at her. Look at my bride. Here she is. Presenting her for the world to see. Beginning with the betrothal, coming to faith in Jesus, moving into the marriage where we're caught up, raptured, we're home with Him, and now into the marriage feast of the Lamb is the presentation of the bride by the groom. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 He comes to be glorified, get this, to be glorified in His saints on that day. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. I, I love it. Today we're talking about this earlier. And since Jake's in the other room, I can talk about him for a minute. But I was, I was so touched. It wrecked him today. Those are his words. Comprehending, and as we just talked about, how, how precious, I don't know of any other word to use, how precious the bride is to Jesus. Do we take enough time to stop and think about how deeply devoted He is to you? How passionately He is in love with you. What He has done and wants to do for you and in you and through you. And Jake, I mean, the old Jake, you know, is tearing up. And he's like, this is just wrecking me today. And I, I sat back going, man, Jake gets it. He's the bride. He's the bride. Jesus is counting down the days. See, we think we're ready. Oh, we're ready, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. You know what He's doing right now? Now, Father. Now. Not, not, okay. One more room needs a little work. All right. Now? Can I go now? I mean, give yourself the opportunity tonight to recognize He is longing to be with you. He is looking to be with you. He wants to return. Have you connected the dots? Uh, Less hinted at this during communion. What was originally a feast that was framed at Passover became focused at the Lord's Supper will be fulfilled at the marriage feast. The Passover lamb? Marriage feast of the what? The lamb. There's a line, a direct line, a bead, if you will, that runs straight from Passover through the Lord's Supper to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Jesus said, Luke 22, 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What is that fulfillment? Marriage feast of the Lamb. Where the groom and the bride together will share the feast. Matthew 26, 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, which by the way, is a great reason not to drink now. If you need an excuse not to drink, think about it. Jesus isn't. He's holding off 
until the celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where He will draw the bride in. And so we have their identities, bride and groom. And we see the intimacy, the deep intimacy Jesus has for His bride. Brings us to number three, the invitation. The invitation, verse 9. And then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. Probably because John's eyes were like saucers as he's comprehending how marvelous and amazing and astounding this is. Right on the verge of the return of Jesus as heaven is going to be open and John is blown away and he's hearing all this and there's got to be a look on John's face like, is this possible? Is this true? And so the angel messenger says, these are the true words of God. Write it down. This is the truth. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Note, I'm not going to go into this tonight, but it's the fourth beatitude in the Revelation. There are four statements of blessing in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a sermon unto itself, and it's a beautiful one, but I'm not going to do it right now. Four beatitudes in the Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. If you want to jot this down. 1, 3. 14, verse 13. 16 verse 15 and then here chapter 19 verse 9. I'll say it one more time. Chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 14 verse 13, chapter 16 verse 15, and chapter 19 verse 9. Each one is blessed. Going back to chapter 1 verse 3, blessed are those who read and those who hear and those who heed the things written in this book. There's your first blessing. Well, there are three more culminating with this one, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I want to get on to who this invitation is for. we got the identity of bride and groom, right? The church, followers of Jesus, in the church age, caught up to be with Him. And the groom, the Lamb Himself, Jesus Christ. Who's invited? Well, does a bride or a groom get an invite to their own wedding? No. You know, the bride's not waiting for the groom to RSVP. If that's taking place, there's a problem in this relationship. The church, the bride is not invited. The bride's going to be there. The groom is not invited. He's going to be there. They have to be there or you don't have a wedding. But invitations go out. So we know that those invited doesn't include the church because the church is there where the bride. So who's invited to this Wedding. One more question to consider as you think this through. Is this marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven or on earth? Now I suggest to you it's in heaven. That this is sometime during, at the end of, I'm not exactly sure, sometime during what's taken place on earth, the seven years of tribulation, we're on a seven-year honeymoon with Jesus, and the marriage feast is taking place. Some suggest it takes place actually right at the beginning, and we flow on through. I think the placement of it here tells us it's at the end. It's prior to the second coming of Jesus to the earth and us with Him. But this marriage feast taking place in heaven, so the invitees have to be there in heaven... And I suggest to you that the best biblical backing we have is that the invitees are the Older Testament saints. Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it could include tribulation saints as well, and I think they'll be there. I think they're invited. 
But the invitation that specifically goes out, I believe it's to the Noahs and the Jobs and the Abrahams and the Sarahs and Ruths and Davids and Daniels and just start naming them. The faithful who we see, people who had faith in God and died at that time prior to the crucifixion, prior to the coming of Jesus, but they died in faith. Like Abraham, God credited, credited their faith to them as righteousness. And so they all die, their spirits going on home to be with the Lord when Jesus was in the grave and then went up and led out. So they're all there. Maybe tribulation saints, maybe angels, but I think specifically the invitation goes out to the Jewish people of old who were faithful, who believed. Why do you think that? Think of the last of the Hebrew prophets. The last Hebrew prophet. Because if you listen to him, he knew his place. And he recognized and stated very clearly that he was neither the groom nor the bride. He was, in fact, the friend. And I'm talking about John the Baptist. Last of the Hebrew prophets. John chapter 3, verse 28, he said, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not the bride, I'm not the groom, I'm the friend. Who gets the invitation? The friend. Friends of the bridegroom. Friends of the bride. Those Older Testament saints. And because John the Baptist understood his place, he decreased as Christ increased. But he is a good representation, a good representative of all the invitees. He is still, by the way, highly significant. Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born among women... There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow. So if, you know, ask a Jewish person, who's the most famous, who's the greatest of the prophets, they'll tend to say Moses, Elijah, you know, perhaps Jesus would say, no, it's John the Baptist. He's the greatest among those born among women. Yet... Yet, the one, Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Wow. What does that mean exactly? Well, the bride is greater than John. The bride is greater by identity, intimacy, even invitation. The bride is greater. This is how it works in heaven anyway, that the least is the greatest. Right? The last is the first. John is the greatest among those born among women, but the least in the kingdom of God, greater than John. The bride is even more beloved, if, if you can put it that way, because she's the bride. This is another thing that was reckoned, Jake, earlier today, is the fact that in all... The, you know, we, we think of Israel as the chosen people, and they are. The Jewish people and God still has a program that is at work that's about to kick into high gear for Israel once again. But Jake was saying, you know, I I think sometimes about Israel, I think they're the chosen people and there's something so unique there about being Jewish and I'm just not. I'm grafted in, but I'm not that. And then you realize, but wait a minute, wait a minute. In all of history, I identify with the bride. 
that, that's where I am. You don't think you're significant to God? Bride of Christ, beloved of Jesus. The marriage supper of the Lamb would suggest otherwise. Well, almost invisible now across all these 19 chapters of the revelation of Jesus, and rightly so, is the angelic agent, the messenger who's been bringing these things. Again, if you look all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, it begins the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. Jesus communicated it by his angel. And here we see this angel again. I wonder, who, who is that angel? Because he's not named. You know, part of my mind goes, is it Gabriel? Not Shalesky. No, different, different Gabriel. The angel Gabriel. Is that because is that Gabriel tends to be an agent of God, although he tends to come with news for Israel. So I don't know who the angel is, but he's standing there with John right now. He has just unloaded all of this incredible, the hallelujah chorus, fourfold hallelujahs, and now the marriage supper of the Lamb and the identity of the bride, and here's the groom, and here's what's going on. And John is absolutely stunned by these things such that the angel has to say, these are the true words of God. And then verse 10 tells us, I fell at his feet to worship him. John. Johnny. How old is John right now? Maybe a hundred? Up in his nineties? He's an old dude. He is the last surviving apostle. If anyone knows you don't worship an angel, it would be John. And yet he falls on his feet and honestly writes to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that! (laughs) I can almost hear a little panic in the angel's voice. Stop that! Who do you think I am? He says, I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Now get this. Caught up in the awe, and I think we can grant John that. He's just so overwhelmed by everything, he just falls down and the angel says, knock it off, get up on your feet, dude. I'm one of you. He says, I'm a fellow servant. The word fellow servant in the Greek is sundulos. Doulos is the lowest form of slave in the Greek language. Sundulos literally translates one who serves the same master as another. The angel saying, don't you dare worship me. I serve the same master you serve. Because you see, angels are servants by creation. They're ministering Servants, They are doulos. They are sundulos along with us in that they serve the same master. But listen, there's a really important distinction between us. Angels are servants by creation. We are servants by redemption. We become servants of God by the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. Created to worship, angels are never allowed to accept worship. One did. One sought it, one wanted it. The devil, and was cast out for it, and a third of the angels went with him. 
Angels are not supposed to receive any kind of worship whatsoever. And yet, interestingly, the Hebrew pastor quotes Psalm 97, verse 7, saying in Hebrews 1, 6, When God again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all the angels of God worship Him. That is Jesus. Let the angels worship Jesus. And we look at Jesus' life, and He often accepted worship. Matthew 8, chapter 2, or chapter 8, verse 2, a leper came to Him and bowed down before Him. The leper comes in a worshipful mentality. Jesus doesn't say, stand up, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant of yours. He receives the worship. The leper says, Lord, if You are willing, You can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out His hand and touched Him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Or Matthew 14.33. After witnessing Jesus walking on the water and then Peter walking out to him and stumbling and sinking and Jesus pulling him out and the two walk back to the boat. As they're getting into the boat, we're told Matthew 14.33, those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. And we do not see Jesus say, Knock that off. You only worship God. Why wouldn't He say that? Because He's God. John 9.35 Jesus had healed a blind man and then disappeared into the crowd. And the blind man got into all types of trouble with the Pharisees. And he goes into the crowd. Jesus goes and finds him later because he hears about this. And he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered him, Who is no longer blind? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who's talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, John 9, 38, and he worshipped him. And Jesus didn't stop him. Or John chapter 20, verse 28, after the resurrection, on that resurrection week, the week later, Thomas finally sees him resurrected, falls before him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not correct him because Thomas is absolutely right. He is both Lord and he is God. Thomas acquiesced to the lordship of Jesus, the headship of Christ, as any member of the bride is called to do. And we see in the New Testament, Peter and Paul and John, along with all the New Testament writers, every single one at some point references Jesus, worships Jesus as God. And so the angel says here, worship God. And then... In the last verse of, or sentence of verse 10, the angel speaks what is, note this, the key verse of the entire book of Revelation. Here it is right here. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony, the witness of Jesus is the breath of prophecy, is the pneuma of prophecy is the spirit of prophecy, the very breath of the prophetic word spoken into the prophets, walked right into history Himself. Jesus Christ in person, the, the, the breath of prophecy in human skin. And I remind you again that Peter said we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Because the prophetic word isn't just what's written in your Bibles. Oh, it is. And pay attention to it. 
but the prophetic word more sure is Jesus Christ. The Word in flesh who dwelt among us. Revelation 21 verse 23 talking about New Jerusalem tells us the following. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp. The lamp. A lamp shining in a dark place. Its lamp is the lamp. There are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. That was weak, but it was it's acceptable. 66 books in the Bible, one revelation, and we will look at the revelation of Jesus Christ in His glorious return on Sunday morning. If not before. <laughs> Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You so much for Your Word to us tonight. I am so encouraged yet again Like my brother, I am wrecked by these things. It it is stunning, Lord. And it's impressive to me that we would actually let go of all of our pride and our kingship of ourselves long enough to allow the truth of the revelation to wreck us. Lord, I don't know where everybody's coming from tonight. I don't know what the life problems are. I don't know if they're first world problems. I don't know if they're serious and heavy. If they're earth shattering. I don't know what, if we all tonight had to put out on the table right where we are. I don't know what the table would look like. But I pray that every person here will hear the voice of the bridegroom calling out to the bride will recognize the gift of the gown of fine linen, bright and clean. We'll not assume that somehow we can turn around our lives and be good, but we'll receive by faith the righteousnesses of God. Help us, Lord, to be those who we choose to live that way. Again, not in arrogance or pride because, oh, we're so righteous. No, we're so messed up and our righteousness is filthy rags. But yours, Lord, is perfect. This is wedding attire. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will fill us up in this place tonight and fill our hearts so that we will be like a bride waiting for her groom. And we pray, yes, Lord, come quickly and call us to the wedding. In Jesus' name, amen.